0: You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Good evening, everybody. Come on in and have a seat. We're going to get started. So we are in the book of James, and we are getting into the thick of the controversy we've been talking about. We're going to be in James chapter 2, talking about this idea of true faith Versus what we might call mental assent. If you don't know what that is, don't worry. Hopefully you will by the end of, of the teaching. So it's always important to remember the context when you read the Word of God. What is, we're, we're jumping into chapter 2, we've been following along in our study, but it's important to kind of refresh ourselves on what is the argument that James is making, who is his audience, all of those things. James is a rarity in the New Testament because it's one of the few books that is addressed specifically to a Jewish background audience. These people are coming from a strict religious background and Christianity is brand new. Jesus died and raised from the dead ...only a decade or so before this this letter was written. And so no one's been a Christian for a long time. What does it look like to live out Jesus' teachings? To be a mature Christian is something that everyone is sort of wanting to understand. What does it look like to put these things into practice? Last week he talked to them about the dangers of showing favoritism... ...particularly along superficial lines... He chose the example of favoring rich people and giving them the nice seat and, and making them feel warm at the, and welcome at their meetings while poor people had to sit in the dirt. But we talked about how there could be all kinds of different superficial ways that we might show each other preference, but that as Christians, we are all children of God. We are all part of, the God, of God's family, and what gives us value are not these superficial external things, but it's God's love for us and the fact that we are God's creation that gives us value, which puts us all on a level playing field. And so he's been talking about that, and we've been talking about the understanding the importance of the difference between James and Paul's audience because we are used to reading letters written to a non-Jewish background audience And James strikes us differently because he's addressing a culture that's different from a Greek culture. Paul's audience, raised under Greek and Roman pantheism, they believed in many gods. It was superstitious. The idea was that you could manipulate the gods. If you were good and you made a good sacrifice and you pleased the gods in some way, they may make your crops grow, they may make your business flourish... And it was a very transactional relationship that they were used to with their supposed gods. So they would try to observe their uh, religion, but it wasn't about a personal relationship with God or with the gods. It was about receiving a blessing from them. And it was primarily focused on the issue of being blessed in this life. We with Our Christian notions think about, you know, heaven and hell and eternity with God. But for the the pagan, Roman, Greek, occult religion, it was really much more about getting what you could in terms of favor out of the gods. James's background, his audience is coming from this Jewish monotheistic perspective. They believe very much, very strictly, there is one God and one God only. It was highly formalistic. It was very ritualistic. There were a lot of things that you had to do, a lot of washings, a lot of cleansings, a lot of dietary laws. It was about avoiding judgment. It was not so much about getting blessed. It was more about not getting cursed by staying clean, meaning that they were going to be living moral lives and ritually cleaning and washing themselves as an admission of their own moral guilt. It was about obedience to God's law. So the, the one that we're looking at on the right is the audience that James specifically is addressing. This is a religious background, and there are dangers of false faith that people from religious backgrounds, Christians or whatever background you want to, you want to talk about, there are da- specific dangers to those who are raised in that environment that we should be aware of. People raised in religious backgrounds have a different set of challenges than some of us who were raised with no particular religious input. For one of the things that they have to deal with is they've been told by their parents, by their family, by their community, what is true since birth. And a lot of times people from that background kind of wrestle with, do they believe themselves? Do they own their own faith? Or is it just something that they were born into, and it's the way that things have always happened, and there are people who will say, I'm a Christian, who really don't understand what Christianity is. They just know that they were raised in a Christian family, their their family prayed at mealtime, and they went to church on Sunday morning. But they may not understand the heart of the gospel message, that Jesus Christ died for their sins. And so this is something that the religious background person has to wrestle with. They may identify with a particular religion just because of the way that they were raised. How do they know that their faith is their own? Someone from a non-religious background who converts knows their faith is their own because they made that decision of their own volition and will. But somebody who is raised a certain way may really kind of wonder, is my faith right? Is it good? For the Jewish people, it was particularly interesting because Judaism is a religion, but being Jewish is an ethnicity. And so how, if you were born Jewish, do you by faith become Jewish, was a tension that a lot of his audience was living in. Jesus raised this issue when he spoke to a Jewish background audience He says in Matthew 7, 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Not everybody who claims to be a Christian has a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a personal thing. It's something where we have an interaction with God and we turn to him in faith and invite him into our lives. We recognize that we have moral guilt, that we have things that we have done that have hurt people, that have been selfish, that fall short of God's standard of perfection. And we recognize that we can't earn God's love, but that we need to receive it as a free gift of forgiveness. That's something that we need to do individually. You can't be born into that. It's something you have to choose. And so what Jesus, all Jesus is saying is there are people that think Christianity is something that it's not. They think it's a culture. They think it's a way that you could be raised. But it's not. It's a relationship. And it's so important that we understand that. And it's so important that James's audience understand that being a descendant of Abraham, which would make them culturally Jewish, does not mean they have a relationship with God. It requires faith. Now, we might look at what I just... Read there from Jesus' teaching, where he says, Not all those who call me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, Those who are truly my followers will do the will of my Father. And that kind of brings in this whole question of, Well, is it a free gift or do you have to do something? And Christians sometimes debate, What does it mean? Do you have to live a good life? Do you have to go to church? Do you have to give your money? Do you have to give to the poor? What is it that you have? How good of a person do you have to be in order to be accepted by God? And the answer from Scripture is very clear. It is by faith alone, by recognizing that need and, and receiving that free gift. And when Jesus says that those who are truly my followers do the will of my Father, he then clarifies what that is in John six twenty nine. He says to them, this is the work of God that you believe in me. So if you want to be a Christian, you have to do the work of God, and you have to do God's will. And what is God's will? That you put your faith in Jesus Christ. So it's very consistent, but it can be somewhat confusing if you read one of these verses out of context. So again, think about our audience. What does genuine faith look like? What does it look like to be a religious background person who is wanting to have a full and fruitful and mature relationship with God. And so in James 2, verse 14, he starts out, What use is it, my brothers? If someone has, has, says, says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? Now this is an interesting question. What if you believe? Well, what if you say you believe is actually what he's saying. You think you believe. You say you believe. But there's no evidence whatsoever that your beliefs and the way that you live your life and your actions line up. He asked this question, is it any good? Is it enough to say you are a believer, to say I'm a Christian? Or does there need to be something else that accompanies that? And so it's important that we recognize they have faith. But there's no evidence in their lives whatsoever that their faith is actually informing their actions. There's no evidence that that faith is real. None of their actions can be attributed to what it is that they claim to believe. Is this person all talk? And what are we to think about that? How are we to think about that for ourselves, let alone for people that we're trying to help understand what a relationship with God looks like? And what James is going to argue is how we live is an important indicator of what we really believe. One of the things that we have to realize that's very useful, I think, is that we're very good at deceiving ourselves. We like to create a picture of ourselves in our own mind that is far better than the actual genuine article of the way that we live our lives. And so we deceive ourselves and have this false self-impression, but you can look to what you do and that will show you what you really believe. How you act is an indicator of, what you, of your faith. And so he brings in an example in verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily foods, so this is somebody who's very poor in great need. And one of you says, go in peace, be warm and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body. What use is that? What good does it do a poor person who's starving to know that you have good intentions? That you're saying, I hope you get a nice meal. I hope you have a nice roof over your head. You know, if someone's starving in the street and you say, I wish you well, is that going to change that person's situation in any way, shape, or form? What good is it to just have good intentions? You see, what he's going to argue here is that God is not a God of theoretical goodwill. God is not just interested in the mental exercise of asking ourselves what is moral or what is immoral or what is good or how should we live, how should we treat each other. God is actually interested in moving us and motivating us to be generous, to be kind, to be merciful, to be patient, to be loving to prioritize relationships over self. God actually wants what he teaches us to have an effect on the way that we live. And if it has no effect, it's the same thing, James says, as telling a poor person, good luck with that. I wish you well. It does nothing to actually change reality. He goes on in verse 17 and says, even so... Faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And this is one of the more difficult passages in the book of James because we look at this and we're like, Wow, look at what he's saying. He's saying, If you have faith, but it has no impact on your life, it is like a body without a spirit it is lifeless. Faith without works is dead. It accomplishes nothing. It's as active and as useful as a dead body. And you're just like, whoa, I mean, one of the things I really love about the teachings of Paul and Christianity is that God, he wants us to do good things, but he doesn't motivate us by fear. He doesn't say, you better do these things and earn my love. He says, You better recognize that you are loved, and that is what will change your life. But what James is saying here is that faith without change, faith without action, isn't faith. And I think we read things like this. I know that I've read it many times, and I think the first place we go is, is my faith good enough? And we kind of feel some tension and some fear, like maybe Christianity really is works after all, and maybe God wants us to do good things, and if I don't do good things, maybe God will not be pleased with me. But then that leads us into the rabbit trail, well, how many good things do I need to do, and how good do they need to be, and how regular, and how do I balance the good things I do with the reality that I also do bad things, and how does all of this work itself out? how do I think about this? And what is it that James is saying here? What does he want me to do? Well, James is not alone. Look at John in 1 John 3, 17 and 18. He says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. That sounds very much like what James was just describing, doesn't it? How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Don't just say you believe these things and do nothing about the injustice around you, about the suffering of other people. If you believe that we are the family of God and every human being that you have ever met is just as important and just as valuable and just as wonderful as you are and just as important and valuable and wonderful as anyone who's ever lived and then do nothing about the pain and suffering in the world? What does that say about what you really believe? Now we have to ask this question because it's, it's at the heart of the concern that we have here. So is this the same as saying I must earn forgiveness by doing good things? Is that what James is saying? Because the way it's worded, is challenging in that way. Well, we have a whole lot of scripture on that that is super clear that it's not that you do good things and then you are forgiven or accepted by God. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He's saying you cannot earn forgiveness and love from God. And that doesn't really contradict what James is saying. What James is saying is if you have faith that results in forgiveness from God, it will have an impact on your life. The emphasis is different, but they don't contradict. Paul writes in Galatians 2.16 very clearly, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law But through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now that kind of seems like it it, it does contradict. He's using similar language as James. James says that your faith will be justified by your works and Paul is saying that no flesh is justified by works. The key here, again, is understanding the background and the audience. Are James and Paul at odds? We talked a lot about contextualization, that you would emphasize different things talking to different audiences. And I think we also need to note that James has already answered this question. Does James believe that you have to earn salvation by doing good works? A, he was murdered by the Pharisees who were the ultimate works people and legalists. We talked about that. B, look at what he's already said in James chapter 1, verse 21. Before he even gets into this discussion, he makes clear that he agrees with Paul. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. You notice what he's saying? He's saying, receive the message of God, because that is what saves you. There's no mention of works in terms of receive and be saved, but after you do that, and after you are saved, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word who delude themselves. You can see how he is eager to bring these things together, to bring them in and in not in tension but in harmony with each other. Yes, salvation is by faith, but faith will change your life. And if it doesn't change your life, that's a problem what he's saying here is faith is more than an idea and that's what we're referring to as mental assent. real faith has life changing realities and so mental assent is you agree in your mind with the bible you agree in your mind with the teachings of jesus you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm just raised that way. That's cool. And yeah, I don't, I don't worship any other God other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the son of God. He raised from the dead. Yeah, I believe that. But you don't believe it enough to let it permeate. You don't believe it enough to let it inform how you live. And James isn't saying that we have to earn forgiveness. He's saying mental assent is not faith. Faith that is dead, that is lifeless, that has no impact on your life is not faith. It's talk. And if you're from a religious background and a a family and you think, well, I'm a Christian because I've always been a Christian. He's saying, well, maybe. But have you come to faith? are you living? He's not saying, are you living perfectly? He's not saying, are you doing all the right things? He's not saying, you know, are you a sinless human being? He's just saying, does what you claim to believe have any impact on what you do? Or else it's mental assent. And then he brings up what's the ultimate example of mental assent. He says in verse 19 to 20, he says, you believe that God is one? Well, you do well. The demons agree with you. The demons also believe and shudder. But you, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? You see what he's doing? He's saying, listen, the demons know. They don't doubt God exists. But they don't follow God. They don't do anything to advance the purposes of God. They don't believe that God is good. And they don't implement the teachings, and the morals of God because they hate God. So just believing that God is real, the God of the Bible, and that he is true, and that he exists, or that he is powerful, he says, that's nothing. That is useless. That will have no impact on you as a person. It needs to be more than that. And then he gives two really interesting examples of faith. Real faith, Abraham and Rahab. Look what he says. He's real brief about it because you can tell his audience knows their Old Testament. These are the stories that they've been raised on. He doesn't need to go into the details. He just says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of works, faith was perfected and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now, if you know this story and you know this background, you would read this in a certain way. If you don't really know the story and the chronology of what happened, you would read this and you would say, he's arguing that because Abraham obeyed God, God made him righteous. That is not, in fact, what he's arguing, and I could prove it to you. A lot of it has to do with the English translation of this word justified. Justified is a tricky word in the Bible because it is often used, especially by Paul, to talk about when we are justified before God, it means that we are made righteous because of Jesus' death on the cross. And so if you read this, that Abraham was justified by works... That puts you in direct contention with what Paul just said, which is is saying that no flesh is justified by works. But there are elements here that are very important to understand. Does James mean justified in the sense that this is what saved Abraham, being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, that that action, that work made him right before God, or is he using justified in another sense that we would be familiar with, in the sense of proven true? There's an old-timey word, fide. That is, do we understand, and what did Abraham prove his faith by being willing? He didn't, ultimately, God did not ask him to sacrifice his son, but Abraham was actually willing to do this. And it is held forth as, the, as a demonstration of how far Abraham was willing to go in obedience to God. So which is it? Is James believing that Abraham earned his salvation by his works? Or is James saying that Abraham proved the level of his faith by his actions? Was Abraham justified by works? Again, this audience would have been super familiar. This is Abraham. This is the father of their faith. This is their George Washington. They know all about the cherry tree. They know all about the sacrifice of Isaac. That God called Abraham, and when his old age, he had, his wife had been barren, and they were in their 80s, and God said, I'm going to give you a son. And then... His wife miraculously got pregnant and began to grow up. And then God said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham was obviously floored. He was shocked. And he took his son to the mountain that God told him to. He tied him up, and he got ready to sacrifice his son. And then God said, don't do it. I wouldn't ask you to do something like this. Is that what made... Abraham, such a great man of faith, and is that what made him right with God? You can read about it in Genesis 22. What's important, though, if you read Genesis 22, first, you should probably read Genesis chapter 15. Because in Genesis chapter 15 is where Abraham is declared righteous by God almost 25 years before the event with Isaac happened, God declared Abraham as righteous because of his faith. Genesis 15:6, then Abraham believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now you think James didn't know this or his audience didn't know it? What made Abraham right with God? is his faith. 25 years later, he demonstrated that faith to an incredible degree. And we know what great faith is because of people like Abraham. And James is not only aware of this fact, he quoted it. Look, the verse I just read, we read this and we think, justified by works when he offered up Isaac. Oh my God. This is works. And he says, no. His faith was perfected, and the scripture that was fulfilled. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. James then quotes Genesis 15. And what he says is, here's what he's saying, and here's how it reads to a Jewish background person. Abraham, the father of faith, proved how great his faith was And made it whole. He perfected it. He demonstrated it. And he fulfilled what God had said 25 years earlier. When God declared Abraham as righteous. Abraham proved that his faith was genuine by his obedience. That's what James means. That's what James is saying. It's right there on the page. He's looking at Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's almost saying like this is like a prophecy. This is fulfilled. This is perfected. We see the ultimate expression of the truth of that claim by what Abraham did. Paul says the same thing, but he says it to a Gentile audience. And so it's much clearer to us. He says in Galatians 3, 5 through 7, So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. They're not disagreeing. They're talking to different people. Paul is making it very clear to people who don't have an Old Testament background that Abraham was made righteous by his faith. This was already known and clear to the Jewish background people. And James's point is simply, we know that Abraham's faith was real, and he demonstrated how great it was in Genesis chapter 22 in this incident with Isaac justified is sometimes used in the Bible to be meaning being made right with God, especially Paul uses that that way. But James, all throughout this section, is using justified in the sense of proven true. Abraham's faith was proven true when he was willing to sacrifice his son, but his salvation came when he put his faith in God. He goes on, 24 and twenty through 26, he says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the same way was not Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so he gives us this example of Abraham and he gives us this example of Rahab. Very interesting choices on his part. Abraham, the first Jewish man, the father of biblical faith, the friend of God, he believed God's promises and he was saved. And then he proved his faith by his willingness to obey, even in the extreme. Rahab, on the other hand, a pagan, Baal worshiper of Jericho, a prostitute, somebody from a Jewish background perspective, this is like, this is the worst of the worst. This is the most sinful kind of person you can imagine. She's a Baal worshiper. She's unclean. She's immoral. She takes money for sex. And in Joshua 2, 10 and 11, we read uh, that Rahab says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt and you di- and what you did to the kings of the Amorites and beyond the Jordan and Sihon and Og whom you utterly destroyed. We've heard about you people and we've heard about your God and when we heard you were coming our way our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you for the Lord your God he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Rahab, this pagan prostitute, has heard about God and the great things that God accomplished through the people of Israel, the victories they had won, and now the spies were in her city looking to take her city down, and she's got these giant walls all the way around her, and they are not that threatening of a people. But she says, I've heard about your God and I believe he is the true God. The Lord, your God, is God. And I'm on your side, she says. I'm gonna betray my religion and my culture and my people and my city and protect you because I believe your God is the one and true and only God. So she believed God believed in God, and then acted and hid and lied about the spies to protect them. This is all very well known to James's audience. She believed, and the degree of her belief was justified, was proven by what she did. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary, says justification is an important doctrine in the Bible. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross. It's not a process. It's an act. It's something the sinner does. It's something God does for the sinner when he trusts Christ. It is a once-for-all event It never changes. How can you tell if a person is justified by faith if this transaction takes place between the sinner and God privately? How can you know? By what they do. By what they do justifies their faith, proves their faith. Faith is subjective. Think about it this way. How do you know that you are loved? You know, I think we think about things like that. and We say, well, uh, my parents love me. How do you know your parents love you? Not all parents love their kids. How do you know? You say, well, you know, they took care of me. They clothed me. They hugged me. They took me to my baseball games. They they put, gave me an education. They protected me. They may not have been perfect, but they did a lot more things for me than anyone else has done in my life. I believe that my parents love me because of what they've done. All those things that I just named are works. They fed you, they clothed you, they protected you, they educated you, they hugged you, they kissed you, they told you that they loved you. Those are all works. That's how this, that's how James is approaching this. He's saying, listen, how do you know you have faith? I remember I've been married for 22 years this December, and uh, my wife and I were on our honeymoon in 1998, and we were a few days in, and I started up a conversation with her. I said, where do you think we'll be in five years? Like, what do you want our life to be like? You know, she was 20, I was 23, and I was like, you know, what? I wanted to, like, really get into, like, let's build a life together. Where do you want to be five years from now? Do you want to have kids five years from now? What do you want to be doing? Where where do you want to be? And her comment was, well, if we're still married in five years. (laughs) And I was like, what? Like, what? Like, we've been married for like four days. You don't think we're going to make it five years? And she was like, huh. I hadn't really thought about that. I had not, apparently marrying her was not sufficient evidence I hadn't done enough works to prove to her she was guarding her heart. She was thinking about this, like, well, I still hope this thing works out. I was like, I don't believe in divorce. Now, hopefully, 21 years in, she's a little more convinced now than she was four days in. But she was, she was expressing something that is very much in line with what James is saying here. Is We know something subjective like, what is faith? Or are we loved? By what people do. And that's as deep as it goes. And we shouldn't press it beyond into this issue of, is he saying that, this, that we're saved by works? Because we already know that James doesn't believe that. How do we know Abraham had faith? We know it. Because he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. How do we know Rahab had faith? Because she was willing to betray and protect her own people and protect the Israelites. He says in verse 24 through 26, "You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. You are shown. your faith is proven not just by what you say, but by what you do. And the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, which he received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James, Paul, Jesus, they all agree. You are saved by faith without works. You cannot earn your way to God, but you can receive it. You want the ultimate example that comes from the Gospels, Luke 23. Jesus is up on the cross, but he's not alone. There's two thieves being crucified on his left and on his right. And one of the criminals in Luke 23, 39, who was hanging there, thought, well, I'm going to die, so I'm just going to troll Jesus, and starts hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other thief rebuked him and says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly. He's like, look, you and I are criminals. This guy hasn't done anything wrong. We are receiving what we deserve for our actions, but this man has done nothing wrong. And as he was saying this, Jesus he turned to Jesus and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This man had faith in Jesus Christ while he was being executed. He could not come down off the cross and do any good works. But his faith was sufficient that had he come down from the cross, he would have begun changing the way that he lived. We know this because Jesus says, you... Are coming with me. We literally have a Jesus approved certainty that someone went to heaven on their deathbed plea to God that he would save them who never had the opportunity to do one good thing. That's pretty ironclad. And James agrees. Faith and works are not enemies. We think of it that way. Well, are you believe in faith or do you believe in works? And James is trying to obliterate that thinking in our heads. He's saying to us, no. They're friends. They go hand in hand. If you truly believe, it will truly change the way you live your life. I think a good way of thinking about this, a good example is baptism. Some people think you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That's a work. That's a ritual. Right? But Christians should be baptized. If you're a Christian and you have not been baptized, you're weird. You're not obeying what Jesus said. He said, Go and baptize in the the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You should be baptized. It's weird. Christians who aren't baptized should get baptized. It's not because you're not saved if you're not baptized, it's because you're not doing what you're supposed to do. That God has said you should do. faith saves you. Baptism is something that you should do because you're saved. Faith saves you. works, good works is something you should do because you've been saved. The point here is this: I don't want anyone to walk out of here afraid that their faith isn't enough. We're not here to inspect fruit. We're here to realize that faith is more than mental ascent. And fear does not motivate us to change. The point is to let your faith and what you believe motivate you into action that will change the world, that will help others, that will inspire others. And if you're sitting here and you're feeling convicted and you're thinking, my faith doesn't have enough action, don't worry about whether or not you're saved. The fact that you're even asking that question is good enough for me. The question is not, is your faith enough? The question is, are you ready to grab an oar? Are you ready to get into the work? This world is messed up, and it's getting more and more messed up all the time. And if you have faith, you should share your faith. You should help others who are lost and don't know and are scared and don't understand why people are the way that they are and what's happening in the world and don't know what happens when they die and don't know if they're valuable and don't know if they have a purpose and what they should be doing with their life. God has the answer to all of those questions. He will come into our lives and he will fill us up and give us meaning and purpose and love and begin to change us. But people need to know that they can receive that from God. If you want to get in the game, grab an oar and start helping people get equipped. Start learning the Bible. Start teaching people, discipling people, and helping them be people who can help others. If you want to get in the game, serve in your community. Fight injustice. Stand up for the wrongs that you see and the way that God leads you to do it. Don't sit back. And say, be warm and be fed. But stand up. That is Christian faith. That's what I got. So why don't I just pray for us and then we'll get outside and enjoy the evening. We thank you, God, that perfect love casts out fear. And that you are not here to make us feel bad. But you want to motivate us to do good. And there's a lot of need, there's a lot of of pain, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of injustice happening in our country right now, and we ask that we could be beacons of light, we could be meaningful players on the field to help, whether it's just helping our neighbor or helping a people group, we just ask God that you'll give us opportunities and lead us into meaningful, impactful love for your children. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.